0: This is a KTF Press podcast.
1: I remember as a kid having so many people trying to pray me away, but I didn't have examples of people in my life who are celebrating my disabled body mind. Mm. And not in terms of pity or inspiration, but in terms of thinking about how miraculous and interesting and magnificent my body mind is. And I think it took a long time and a lot of therapy <laughs> to get to that place mm. because the narratives out there also seeped in ableism.
2: Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. My name is Cy Hukstra. I'm here with Jonathan Walton. Susie, uh, we had a slight scheduling snafu, so she couldn't be here with us. We are going to be talking today uh, about disability justice in the church with a fantastic guest who Jonathan's going to introduce to you in a second. But before he does, as always, uh, just a quick reminder, go to ktfpress.com. If you have a second, check out the subscription that we have there. Um, it gets you the bonus episodes of this show. It gets you our weekly newsletter where Jonathan and Susie and I recommend, uh, all kinds of things, all kinds of media highlights and everything to, to help you in political education and discipleship, uh, as you leave colonized faith. And we're, it's a Substack website. So if you have the Substack app or if you already have a Substack account, nice and easy for you to go find us. That's it from me for now, Jonathan. Tell the people who we have with us today.
0: Yeah, today we are blessed to have Amy Kinney. She is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet, <laughs> ditto. She serves on <laughs> the Mayor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force in her home city, coordinates support for people experiencing homelessness in her neighborhood, and is currently co-launching Jubilee Homes OC, a permanent supportive housing initiative in her local community. She is a scribe for Freedom Road Institute and believes that every human is an image bearer worthy of belonging. She's the author of the book, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church, which we're going to be talking about today. Thank you again so, so much for being here. You write, all the time um, about people having tried to heal you through prayer. So we're going to jump right in with this question, right? <laughs> uh, or By suggesting a wild assortment of home remedies. When I saw that, I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Garlic in the socks was my personal favorite.
1: Oh, my personal favorite's the hitting your leg with a hammer.
2: Oh, okay.
1: It's so violent and ridiculous. <laughs>
2: <Lord> <laughs> what do they had.
1: think is going to happen? somehow right. i'm still disabled
0: <laughs> right you discuss the difference between this type of curing and the bible's notion of healing which is which is really powerful so could you talk about that distinction and why it's important for the church to understand and i would say not just understand but embrace
1: yeah i think it's crucial to our understanding of what is happening in these healing narratives with Jesus and also to our own understanding of what it means to include disabled people in whatever spaces we're in. Curing, I think is usually what's taking place in these stories, which is Mm. a physical process. It's usually a rapid one. It focuses on eliminating pain or disease. And that's generally, in a lot of Western settings, what we think of medicine as. But healing is much deeper than that. It's messy, and it takes a long time. It's complicated, and it takes a community as well. It's not just about an individual or about one body-mind. It's about restoring that person to the community and giving them a deeper sense of belonging. I think that's so crucial for us to think about when we read these narratives and when we talk about healing today, because just by virtue of any of my mobility aids—my cane named Eileen, get what I did there—my my, <laughs> my um, mobility scooter named Diana after Wonder Woman—folks approach <laughs> me and assume that I want to be fixed or changed, and that's a really harmful and ableist assumption. And it's based on that idea that bodies need to be cured in order to be healed. And one of mm-hmm. the invitations of the book is to rethink that premise.
2: Mm. You actually talk about the the Greek word for healing that Jesus uses uh a couple different times in the Bible and how it encompasses everything, like communal restoration and and psychological healing. And I thought that that point was really interesting. You do a reading of John 9, which despite the fact that I've read it a million times, I thought was really interesting and something I'd never heard before. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you mind digging into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that word, sozo, means to make whole. It's not about fixing or eliminating some sort of pain or disease or even disability. It's about restoring. And I think that's such a different understanding if we think of Jesus more as kind of a therapist than as a kind of magician or vending machine. I think that's a really different way of approaching Jesus in these narratives. John 9 is really important to me, really central to my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus or to think about Jesus uh, because people are assuming that this man who unfortunately is unnamed and is blind is sinful somehow, and the disciples are asking, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, nope, wrong, that's not it at all. (laughs) In fact, this person is blind so that God's works can be revealed. And ableist readings would tell us that the curing is what reveals God, but that's not actually what Jesus says, and Jesus is Mm -hmm. pretty I'm generally not a the Bible is clear person, but I think Jesus is pretty clear that (laughs) it's not about sin that is connected to disability here. What's so fascinating about this passage is that when this man receives sight, that doesn't actually solve any of his problems in the community. He's still Mm. ostracized and excluded. He is still condemned and on the outskirts. And I think if that passage were only invested in the physical, in the cure, then it would end after a couple of verses. Yeah. But it goes on for forty more verses, talking about what happens to this man and the restoration and healing that Jesus offers.
0: Mm, it was powerful. At um, at one point in the book, you talk about uh, Zora Neale Hurston when she said, "If you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it." Mm. Um, which I think is a just a powerful way to understand the oppressive intent behind narratives about supercrips and brave or courageous disabled people overcoming their disability. Can you you talk a little bit about how learning to speak about pain and suffering was crucial for you to learn how to do that in spite of the fact that so many people just don't want to hear about it?
1: Yeah, people would rather me be a mascot for their mm-hmm. narrative of what it means to be a disabled Christian woman, then actually share the realities of my experience. Mm-hmm. And there's so much inspiration porn narratives out there, this idea from Stella Young and that in that disabled people are here to inspire others. We become mm-hmm. objects instead of subjects. We are used and consumed and really just for the pleasure of others, instead of having our own complex, messy lives. Mm-hmm. Who wants to be a mascot or an inspiration when you can be a human? <laughs>
0: and <laughs> right. I,
1: and I think it's also unfair because it suggests that the most important thing in my life is doing something for you, making you feel good, moving you, and that's, that's unfair to put on disabled people. Mm -hmm. And I think it works the same way with being brave and courageous. I'm often told that I'm courageous or I'm brave. And this isn't by people who know me. Mm -hmm. This is by strangers, folks at the library approach me saying that. Someone at the grocery store, oh, you're so brave. Look at you, good for you for getting out and about. As though just by virtue of existing, there's something brave about being disabled. Mm. And that gets really exhausting because I shouldn't have to be brave to exist. I should get to live into the fullness of my humanity, whether or not that is inspirational or brave or happy clappy. And I should get to have a full range of emotions that shouldn't be taken away from me because I'm disabled.
2: Hmm. I've definitely gotten the you're so brave by strangers on the street before. Um, Right? Uh, yeah, like all the time. Actually, well, yeah. not all the time, but it it happens, and it's so it's so disorienting when it happens because <laughs> i never yeah. like I'm usually just you know lost my own thoughts or I'm listening to something or whatever, and someone just randomly says you're so brave, and I'm like, uh, 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 thanks, I guess. <laughs> and, mm. and um, I but what I was reading, there's one passage in particular where you were talking about all of the um, doctors and nurses who were calling you brave and courageous as they were like. Performing seemingly f- painful medical procedures on you, and um, it, the thing that it reminded me of—I'm guessing you know, do you know who I- Imani Barberin is?
1: Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay. So disabled activist, um, and and she—I'm uh, paraphrasing, but she has said something to the effect of, "When people start calling you a hero, is when they have an excuse to kill you," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's what I kept thinking of—is like this this notion that. If if you are brave and if you are courageous and and you are willing to kind of bear all of the burdens that the system or that individual people's like microaggressions put on you, mm. uh, and then you end up dead because of it, it's a it's an excuse, right? Like it's something. It's, it's not as sad because you like you you were voluntarily being brave under the circumstances, right? Even mm. if you weren't really internally, but like it's something. It's, it's it's an appearance thing, right?
1: Yeah, it's a virtue signaling. And it excuses actually doing anything to prevent the ableism it, exactly. of our society,
2: right? Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't just apply to disabled people either, right? Like I, I heard, I heard somebody, <laughs> I was listening to um, John Stewart's podcast at one point, and one of his writers brought up this quote that I had read from from Bonnie Barber, and it was they they were talking about it in the context of um, war veterans who, you know, they they come back from war and then they. Um, get, like, denied health the healthcare that they were promised by, you know, the VA. And, like, because they're heroes, because they were made to be heroes through the process of, like, valorizing the military, it just becomes part of the excuse to, you know, make you jump through a million completely unnecessary uh, bureaucratic steps in order to be able to get the healthcare that was, um, you know, promised to you, like, legally when you you enlisted or whatever. It's just, it's something that I think um, applies to all kinds of, heroes and how labeling someone a hero or brave or whatever separates them from everybody else. And, you know, it kind of fits right in with inspiration porn and all that other stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I am, you know, and on our podcast, we, we focus on like how we're, we're talking across difference. Right. And like, you know, I've known Psy for a long time, but I will never know what it's like to be blind and like live in that reality. Um, and And so I, I know there's a steep learning curve, but what resonates for me though, in that I I have a poem and I've talked with Sai about it, like how my mom is like this hardworking black woman would be valorized. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And there's a, it, it, whether you are idolizing someone or you are still dehumanizing them. Mm, Right. And, and yeah. And, and one of the ways that, that 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 dehumanization happens is around like beauty, right? And power and things like that. And so you write about power and beauty that we can find in disabled people in their bodies, even though our standards of beauty and power are often, they exclude you and people in your community. And so um, could you give a window into your thoughts about how we need to, to lift up disabled people as beautiful and powerful in a way that isn't riddled with ableism and you're already good at this, but communicating it for someone like me who like, I will join your community one day statistically, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um,
1: That's how inclusive we are.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, always welcoming, as Dr. Lamar Hardwick would say. Yeah. <laughs> and so to to help me enter your community in a more loving way, mm-hmm. what's a way that like I can lift up, you know? Y'all is beautiful and powerful in a way that isn't riddled with my own stuff.
1: Yeah. I think that this comes out a lot when people describe us as special needs and assume that our needs are special when actually we're just human. And, you know, when you go somewhere, when you go to a restaurant, you want there to be somewhere you can pee. When you are <laughs> working, you want there to be a plan for your escape in the event of an emergency. Yeah. Mm. You want to be able to access the content that people are sharing online or otherwise. Those aren't special needs. Those needs are human. So really stripping away this idea that there's something extra or special or different about disabled people that means that we're some sort of subcategory of human. I think this Mm -hmm. comes out in relationship to, that's in relationship to power, but I think it also comes out in relationship to beauty as you're saying, because disabled people are so infantilized that we're never really allowed to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. We are allowed to be adorable and inspiring and heroic but we aren't beautiful because our bodies don't fit into this idea of the cishet, thin, white, idealized, non-disabled figure. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us, when we think about beautiful bodies, have so internalized those notions of ableism, racism, fatphobia, queerphobia, that we don't even realize that that's what we're doing. And this gets projected onto our notions of what heaven or utopia or new creation mm-hmm. are. And mm-hmm. I think it also gets projected onto relationships that we see all the time when out in public, my, I, I either get pat on the head, like I'm a dog, mm-hmm. you know, good job, little dog. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, Cause I'm a few feet lower than folks when using my mobility scooter or wheelchair But something that my husband receives a lot is told that he's a saint Mm -hmm. just by virtue of having a disabled wife. As though the whole purpose of our relationship and partnership is to shame him into staying with me, comma, the burden. You know, like Mm -hmm. that's just absurd and really harmful. And love him, but he's no saint. And our relationship (laughs) is and our relationship is mutual. And so I think even extending this idea of power and beauty into relationships and to stop these myths of in a in an interabled relationship, there's one person who's a burden and there's one person who's a saint or our notions of what beautiful can be. Beautiful is where joy is and where someone is radiant. And we just, we don't have the same, Parameters when it comes to nature. All kinds of nature is disabled and we think it's mm. beautiful. And what if we could extend that to humanity?
2: Hmm. Oh, man, I have 800 thoughts about that.
1: Only 800. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It is low. Um, I, one thing that comes to mind on uh, this is, man, this is like a little bit of a depressing story, but when I was um, in, in high school, there were a couple times, I'm not going to say that this happened a ton, there were maybe two or three times, where some uh, girl was being very obviously flirty in a way that I would, like, in a you know, very awkward, like, 14, 15-year-old, like, you're trying way too hard, and it's, like, kind of adorable and really awkward at the same time. And But I didn't realize that until I was, like, you know, 27 or something, being like, Oh, that interaction I had was someone attempting to like do like make some romantic advance because I had so internalized the idea that there was nothing to be found in me in terms of like beauty or romance or anything like that, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hi, Dr. Kenny, I met you half an hour ago and now I'm disclosing like high school insecurities. but um
1: that's what podcasts are for. <laughs> we talk about all our trauma together. <laughs>
0: <I guess> this <laughs> is a podcast. Report. Yeah. <laughs> trauma buffet. We all just kind of come out. Yeah.
1: yeah right.
2: Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's true. So, yeah, I don't know that. But but what but that what I'm kind of getting at is having books like yours and having people talking about it openly. There's just so many people, I think, for whom that is so healing. And also probably not just disabled people, right? Just anybody right. who doesn't fit into um, the whatever our standards are. Uh, for any reason, which is another uh, of the million ways that we have talked about on the show before, is that one any any like individual group's liberation is always going to kind of radiate out and make other people have more flourishing lives. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, I wrote down a lot of phrases when i was when I was reading your book that you wrote, and uh, one of them was uh, "civil." My civil rights are not guacamole, and <laughs> the, you were <laughs> you were specifically talking about. Um, an IEP meeting that you had when you were in high school and just the in- extreme amounts of difficulty that you had, um, getting your teachers and your school administrators to, you know, provide even the most basic accommodations, like really simple stuff, um, for your education. Uh, and then you also talk about it. Well, basically you were saying they were treating your civil rights like the optional extra guac on a burrito <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you also talk in the book about the ways that, that churches actively fought against the disability rights movement and the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, and actually got themselves exempted from the Americans with Disabilities Act's requirements for buildings to be accessible. And And I was just wondering um, if you could dig into a little bit how how your vision for society and your vision for church of like centering disabled people in terms of how we build things up from the ground so that we're not... Uh, just treating, you know, the the things that you and I need as, uh, as an avocado spread.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, teachers, churches, act as though they're doing us a favor when they allow us into their world mm. as though this is extra or optional. And mm. at the root of that, I think, is this idea of the charity model that disabled people are pitiable objects that we give charity to and we can extend that at any time and we can take that away at any time and that's largely the particulars are some of them are in the book but that's largely how i have been treated in churches and schools mm-hmm. as though civil rights are something that are extra and altruistic and of course because churches fought against ADA it's still legal to discriminate against disabled people in church spaces and in Christian schools. So churches don't have to provide ramps or sensory rooms or accessible services in any way. And that hurts still, even though I know that that doesn't smell like Jesus, that still hurts that that's the case. My vision for the way that we really should be gathering is the one that Jesus gives us in Luke 14, which is this accessible banquet. And Jesus Mm -hmm. says, go out and invite poor people and disabled people. And those are the first people invited. There's no suggestion of cure or condemnation. It is an accessible banquet where there is community and people get to dine together at an accessible table where poor and disabled people are centered. And if churches could do the same, if churches could create that accessible banquet, it would radically change what Chach could be to disabled people. Hmm.
0: So my daughter is, is amazing. Um, she got the Empathy Award for her, her class. <laughs> She's Proud <five>. father. <laughs> um, but she asked me these questions. And one question that she asked was, um, I brought up Uncle Cy, and I said, Uncle Sai is blind, and you know we're gonna go there. And he, him and Gabrielle, i.e., i.e. is like ma'am in Chinese. We speak Mandarin and English in our house. My wife, and my yeah, my wife is Chinese, and Gabrielle is able-bodied. And so Maya said, "Why would Gabrielle marry Uncle Sai?" And my reaction. Was I? I said because he loves her, because she loves him, because he's just as valuable, and all these different things. But then I told Sai about it, and Sai, you said to me, "Well, it's obvious that she has not seen many couples together that are like one person is able-bodied, one person is not." And that had never, that had not crossed my mind at all. And Sai, you didn't see my reaction, but I was like, "Oh shh." <laughs> 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 i did, I didn't think about that. I wonder, particularly because you know, in this question we talk about, it's not necessarily strangers that do harm, but it's friends and family who who say things that are that are hurtful and do damage. And so, how do I change the air that Maya breathes mm-hmm. so that when she has a conversation with our godson who's autistic? has a conversation with my aunt who has had a stroke is in a wheelchair now. And like, Mm. like how, what, what would you say as a follower of Jesus discipling people to help us create different air? Mm. Right. So that we're able to, to breathe and move more freely.
1: Usually just run them over with my wheelchair and I'm just gone (laughs) before anyone knows.
0: (laughs) Even children, Amy.
1: Oh, yeah, they're easy targets. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing about idols is that they become so invisible and so immersive that we don't realize they're there. And mm. I think one of the first phases is to acknowledge that they're there, to ask questions and be curious and learn and grow together and there's a lot of messiness along the way to be sure. But even surrounding Maya with various intoabled couples and various cool crips, you know, folks who mm-hmm. are disabled and have disability pride. I wish I had that as a kid. I remember mm-hmm. as a kid having so many people trying to pray me away and I had I had ample examples of that, but I didn't have examples of people in my life who are celebrating my disabled body mind. Mm. And not in terms of pity or inspiration, but in terms of thinking about how miraculous and interesting and magnificent my body mind is. And I think it took a long time and a lot of therapy <laughs> to get to that place mm. because. The narratives out there are so seeped in ableism. But what if instead we invited one another to behold disability in nature and we thought about how, and this is some of how I came to disability pride for myself, is thinking about how kangaroos don't walk, they hop. And they can't go backwards. They can only go forwards. And I'm Australian. And so that for me really <laughs> resonated because I, I have a somewhat stumbling, hoppy, um, kind of can't do certain things gait. Lions sleep almost all hours of the day and they're mm-hmm. fierce and, and amazing. And we think they're cool, but they act more like spoonies than workaholics. And I'm a right. spoonie. And no one belittles them because of that. No one belittles the emu as weaker than the sparrow because it cannot fly. Mm. No one thinks that bees whose whole existence and survival is down to drone bees who are stingless and only carry one set of chromosomes, no one thinks that those are pitiable or less than. Their whole existence is down to what we might call disabled bees. And I think starting to behold that in nature, starting to realize that my body too is marvelous, and my disability doesn't take away from that, and it's not in a way of saying, and everything's perfect and great, yay, but to recognize that my body contains secrets that science is still discovering, and my leg is as blue as sapphires, And my spasms and different way of moving about the world is celebrated when it comes to nature. What if we could really believe disabled body minds are made of stars? And I think just surrounding all of ourselves with those kind of narratives is so important to unlearning ableism, but also to celebrating disability as the gifts it can offer us.
2: I, I remember speaking to a, a guy one time, and I he had a daughter, and I found out she was deaf, and I was just like, I'm not sure that anyone else has ever had this reaction when you told them that, but um, hooray! I'm really excited about you, the fact that your daughter's deaf, <laughs> and he was yeah. just like, he was just like, uh, no, no one has ever had that reaction, but I do appreciate it, <laughs> you know, and I think yeah. it it is it is sort of a. It's just it's a little bit funny to people who haven't thought that way before, but I I do um in probably what, what is a little bit of a stereotypical way, just like get excited when somebody else walks in with a white cane or rolls in on a wheelchair or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause there's solidarity and access intimacy, and also because disability is a culture. It's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. only that medical model that most of us have been taught. And it's not just the social model either. It is a culture. We have our own heroes and languages and customs, and we have our own inventions and ways of being together. And just like other cultures, we should celebrate disability for what it gives the broader society because we're uniquely creative because we live in a world that isn't made for our body minds. Mm.
2: Um, Because you said the word spoonie before, can you just give people a quick explanation of what a spoonie is?
1: (laughs) Yeah. A spoonie is someone who uses spoons, which is basically a metaphor for energy when you are chronically ill or disabled. So it's this idea that one task equals one spoon and those spoons fluctuate from day to day. So some Mm -hmm. days I have enough spoons to be able to, get dressed and work and talk to lovely people on a podcast. And other days <laughs> I don't have any spoons to get out of bed mm. or to shower or I need assistance doing a lot more things. So it's just kind of a helpful framework to get people to understand what it means to live as a chronically ill or disabled person. Mm.
2: Um, one question that I just really randomly came up with um, your your normal job is you're a Shakespeare lecturer. Your, I mean, your normal job, your day job. Uh, when you teach your students Richard the Third, do you just come in like blazing with the anger of a thousand suns, or how does how does that Always. happen? <laughs> <Okay>. Always, yeah. <laughs>
1: Not just when I teach Richard the Third, yeah. I just teach angry. <laughs> I I do teach Richard the Third really deliberately because I think that there's something. Interesting for students about having to think about a disabled body on stage being taught by a disabled body mind in the classroom. And Mm. we just can't avoid it and we shouldn't. And so we should talk about it. And it really makes plain for them, I think, the ways that my body becomes public property, the ways that so many narratives are placed onto our bodies as disabled people about being supervillains, looking at you, Darth Vader. Or being, um, you know, inspirational heroes, or disability being a fate worse than death, as we see in movies like, um, what's that one horrible movie? Where
2: are you thinking about? Is it? It's called like Me Without You, or Yes, yes. 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 Anyway, no one
1: see that, but just horrible. (laughs) Um, anyway, just talking with students about that and thinking about what does it mean for. Richard to use his disability as a performance and for him to talk with us about disability and how does that line up with some of these other narratives and tropes that are out there. And I think just as in any of my classes, what what the class is called is Shakespeare, but what I really teach is compassion and inviting students to think about the lived experience of the other and to resonate with that and to have compassion and even where a character is a villain to try to consider what are their motivations for doing this and what are the places that we can connect with this character or have a deeper understanding of our own humanity because of this character
2: my uh my sister is a is a High school literature teacher, and I would be willing to bet that she's tearing up right now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. That mm. whole the, the whole idea of of literature teaches you empathy and compassion and mercy is yeah right up her alley.
0: Mm. Man, so much to learn, <laughs> great, and grateful that y'all are willing to te- to teach me and us. I should
1: say, I feel the same. Like we all have so much to learn because we've all been indoctrinated in these systems.
0: It's true. Can, okay, so Cy, when I'm in Psy's presence, he gets this a lot. As soon as he says, oh, look, he went to law school, everybody goes like, wow, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we all know what the wow is about. Oh, um, yeah. And something that I was, when I, you know, in, in trying to do work around, like, patriarchy and build, like, undoing, like, the, the toxic masculinity that I'm in, indoctrinated with, like, is giving Maya and the women around me compliments on things they can control. Um, What is a compliment that is helpful and not patronizing for your community around your accomplishments that isn't riddled with like celebratory
1: pity? Psy go first. (laughs) (laughs) I think a great, question to ask ourselves anytime we're going to give someone a compliment mm-hmm. is am i saying this because of their social location or because of their the complexity of their identities because of course many people contain multiple marginalizations right and it's not to say that it's wrong if the answer is yes because we should recognize the complexity of barriers For people with multiple marginalizations. But I think that can be a helpful tool to think about why am I giving this compliment? Why should I be surprised that Sai went to law school? Because law school sounds horrible and hard, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Or is it because there is something that there is a ceiling that I'm assuming because of disability. Right. And so I think even in your setup of the question, you're answering it. And I think that idea of giving people compliments over things they can control is so important because I I often get that I'm courageous or brave or an inspiration. Or if someone finds out that I'm Dr. Amy Kenny, there's kind of a surprise of... You, wow. Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, good for you. As though it was just sort of given to me, as though, <laughs> as though I didn't battle ableism right, institutionally right. and interpersonally every phase of the way. Right. And I think I don't know if if you experience this side, but I think it's it's complex as a disabled person who has you know, air quotes, achieved success Mm -hmm. in what it looks like in some capitalistic model. Because, of course, capitalism is harmful to disabled people because we can't keep up. And it sells us the lie that we are what we produce and that we don't have worth just simply by existing. So then if you make any sort of strides within that system and appraised the weight that I often feel is that that's weaponized against other members of my community. Yes, absolutely, yes, yeah. I don't want to be everyone's go-to version of disabled people can make it so you should too. Yeah, right. No, I want to create a classroom and an atmosphere and a church and a table where we are so centering people who are multiply marginalized that it allows for the co-flourishing of everyone.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I also think, um, I, I also think that you know, with the, the specifically with the point of inspiration porn, right? When people get complimented for being, you know, for overcoming their disability by trying really hard and having a good attitude, and you know, then serving as inspiration for other people who don't have it as hard, <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't mind people telling me that I've overcome a lot. When they're when they understand what I've actually overcome, right? <laughs> like if they understand, like y- mm-hmm. and you and getting your doctorate had to face all kinds of ableism in addition to actually just getting a doctorate, which is hard in and of itself. Um, that's great. Like if somebody <laughs> understands that and they want to tell me, it's it's in- inspirational to me that you were able to f- like fight this horrible system and like get through it mm-hmm. okay. And they yeah. understand that it would be fine if I didn't get through it okay because it it's like a incredibly random set of circumstances that gets you through uh in a way where you're still like your your quote unquote achievement and success is still like intact, right? Um yes. that's that's great. You can compliment me for that all day long. Cause you know what? It is hard and I appreciate it when people compliment me for stuff that I did that's hard. <laughs> um but yeah it's it that's why I, that was my thought when you said it's kind of about the intent of the compliment. Like why are you giving it what's the What's the right. purpose of it, right? Mm-hmm. So you could give I, I, what I'm saying is I think you could give a compliment um, because someone has a, a particular status as long as you like have actually listened to them and understand what being a, a member of that marginalized group entails. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so, so what I'm receiving from that is that context is key. I think generally when it's inspiration porn it strangers or people totally. on the periphery of our lives yeah. right. But when someone realizes what it took to get you where you are, then a compliment actually feels really validating as though they are appreciating the fullness of what it took. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way that once you have a certain degree, people put success onto you, even if it's not true in your life. So an example is that I have a doctorate, so then I'm in this column of success, but that really erases the fact that my job is not stable, I'm on temporary contracts, Mm. you know, so this idea of this external validation, because there's some sort of degree, and not really understanding the complexity of a situation, that it's actually... Very common for disabled people, you know, typically, the more degrees a disabled person has, the higher the wage difference is between their non-disabled counterparts. Hmm.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. And then there's the added layer of if you spend time where you can't find work they're like the whatever money you have gained is going to be used against you if you try to get social security (laughs) you're married so you can't get you're not even eligible i think right for social security exactly yeah
1: Yeah, disabled people don't have minimum wage protection marriage equality 80 percent of polling places are inaccessible
2: yeah i think i have voted independently twice and i've voted a lot more than that (laughs) because the, because the machine never works, right. The, the, there, there is a machine there for me that is supposed to be used by like visually impaired or reading disabled people. It's like an audio voting machine, but it uh, is often broken down.
1: Yeah. And even saying all of these facts, a lot of people are completely unaware of any of these. Right, And that's part of how ableism works is to erase our stories So when someone's saying, we're just their inspiration, if they have a knowledge of all of those facts, Mm. hey, I'm in. (laughs) But if they don't know that we don't have marriage equality, we don't have minimum wage protection, disabled people are kept in poverty deliberately in the system, tens of thousands of people die just waiting to find out if they're eligible for disability payments, Mm. Then it it just has a really different context and a really different tone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when people tell me like, "Oh, it's so great that you made it to Columbia," and they have no idea where Broadneck, Virginia, is, like, <laughs> right. it it means nothing. But if they know where it is, like, and where I'm from, it it means exponentially more. So that that's thank you for for sharing all of that because that's it's it's closer than I thought it would be. But harder than I, I expect. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. what you are saying is not unfamiliar, but it's yeah. it's a turn and a and to to unlearn these things is it's it's an exceptional level of difficulty that is absolutely necessary to exist as a kind person. So I appreciate I appreciate you sharing all that.
1: Yeah, and what an invitation to each of us to see the ways our stories overlap in this Venn diagram. And to make sure that we're doing that for one another so that we, we have mutual liberation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Before we let you go, uh, obviously, everybody go read the book, My Body's Not a Prayer Request. You can tell right from the title that uh, Amy is a fantastic writer and mm-hmm. is just as as witty on the page as she is in person. Um, where can people find you, though?
1: Sometimes I'm on Instagram at Dr. At Dr. Amy Kenny. I say sometimes because I am an introvert. So sometimes you can find me there. Uh-huh. Other times not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for for being with us today. This was seriously a pleasure.
1: Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
2: of course. Thank you so much. Everyone, before we go, uh, just as a quick reminder, com. if you at all appreciate what we're doing, uh, please go check that out there and consider subscribing to get the bonus episodes uh, of this show and our newsletter and to support everything else we do um like the things that we do to keep our stuff accessible like transcribe this show that costs money and we appreciate it when you support that um our theme song is citizens by john Guerra. our podcast art is by jacqueline tam and we will see you in two weeks